0: Once again it's great to see everybody here. Good to have everybody that is here here. You weren't close to your neighbor, you will be after this service. We'll have to sit close tonight, so I see a whole lot of social distancing going on, right? (laughs) Yahweh, I love you so much and I'm so thankful for everything you've done for me and my family. And the family of Yahweh, thank You for Your compassion and Your kindness towards us. Thank You for a repentant heart. Thank You for a desire to obey. Yahweh Father, let this sermon encourage and lead and guide through Yeshua Your Son, I pray. Amen. David, if you could get Dad a bottle of water, please. So today, what I had planned on doing, or actually what I had planned on doing a couple of services ago, was teaching this sermon, but I wasn't able to make it here. The TJ and Brother Frankie filled in for me, and I got to teach on the Day of Atonement service, but I'm going to teach what I had planned on teaching on that Sabbath, and I wanted to get into the office of a prophet and a prophetess. And then I wanted to talk about Miriam and then I wanted to move into the ministry of Deborah, the judge in the book of Judges. And before I do that, I'm inclined to give you a little backstory about my life and development as a follower of Yahweh. Now you might wonder right now why does brother Matthew have to do that? But I think as I progress in this lesson, that you'll begin to understand. So this will be part of my series about strong women in Scripture. So I'm going to start with my teenage years here in Conyers, Georgia. When I was a teenager, I was a member of a church named Victory Tabernacle. It was the Pentecostal church that my great uncle pastored, Franklin Walden. And many people in my family attended that church. It was there that I began to develop my beliefs and understandings of Scripture from about the ages of 13 to 16 years old. That's pretty young for someone to begin developing personal beliefs but for whatever reason Yahweh called me at a young age He doesn't call everybody at a young age and it's okay if He didn't call you at a young age that's okay I'm not saying that he has to but that's how it worked out for me I was in church back then at least three times a week Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then the true believers came, I think Brother Tim said, on Wednesday night. <laughs> I joined them in what was called a Timothy's class. I was 15 years old. My great uncle, Franklin, started this class, and it was held early Sunday mornings before church, and it lasted anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes, but it was a group of men from my age, 15, around that age, up to probably 40 years old, Men who had a desire to sit under elders, study the Bible, and then one day teach it to other people. Well, one of the subjects that stood out to me in my teenage years, because of certain people that I hang around or hung around, was what was called in the church or churches like ours, holiness standards or Pentecostal distinctives. My Uncle Franklin didn't talk a lot about these standards, but he believed in some of them. And other men and women that I was close to in the church followed these standards. Things like modesty in clothing, no pants or makeup for women, no jewelry for anyone, women shouldn't cut their hair, and even some men I ran into believed that men should be clean-shaven because we were supposed to look neat and clean for the Lord. This is what I was told. Well, I decided to believe in and follow those things as a teenager and the early years of my marriage. I could see those teachings from a few verses in the Bible, but my main reason was I felt that as believers we needed to be different from the world. Now during this time between 1996 and 1998, I started to learn about other things in the Bible. Things like the sacred name, the Sabbath, the dietary law, the festivals. And I soon began to believe all of these things, plus I continued to hold to what was known as old-time Pentecostal holiness standards. That's what they were called. Well, fast forward up a few more years to 98 to the year 2000. Well, I became more convicted of personal Bible study in those two years. I was married early on. But I was around some older men who always told me, Study for yourself, Matthew. Don't take any man's word for something. Always go back and check it out for yourself. And so that's what I began to do. And I figured that if I found out one thing that I believed was wrong, and I had to change that thing, then I needed to go back over everything. Right, Brother Glenn? One at a time. Sometimes we drop suitcases of tradition, but we forget to check our pockets. And we leave tradition in our pockets. Well, I eventually got around to studying these holiness standards of the Pentecostal Church in light of Holy Scripture. And I guess, as I was putting this sermon together, I guess it started with jewelry. Tisha and I used to never wear jewelry, not even wedding rings. I didn't believe in it, and I would cite two verses in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, 9-10, through 10, and 1 Peter 3, 3-4. through 4, Both of those verses address the way that believing women should and should not adorn themselves. Well, When I got around to studying the issue of whether or not it was a sin to wear jewelry, it was the early 2000s. My study methods were getting sharper, and I was learning that proper Bible study examined all of the Scriptures and not parts of the Scriptures. That's so important. I've titled this... Lesson tonight, studying the whole Bible. You'll understand that more as we move along. But the Lord was not going to teach one standard of morality in the Older Testament and then change that standard in the Newer Testament. He was not going to allow His people to practice something in the Older Testament and then turn around and condemn that practice in the Newer Testament. We don't serve a mighty one like that who changes his mind on what sin is. So after I finished studying, I came to a conclusion that was different than what I had been told by some of my superiors. I came to the conclusion that it was not a sin to wear jewelry. I learned that sin was and is and only is the transgression of Yahweh's law, 1 John 3 verse 4. And I couldn't find any law or commandment that taught against men or women wearing jewelry. I also found positive, righteous examples of people wearing jewelry. My favorite is Genesis 24 where Isaac and Rebekah get betrothed and Abraham, the righteous Abraham, sends Rebekah gifts of jewelry. I also found a place where jewelry was being used as an analogy of Yahweh's forgiveness and His love and His exaltation. And that's in the parable of the prodigal son, where when the prodigal son finally comes to his senses and comes home, one of the things that the dad does is put a gold ring on his finger and says, you are forgiven, my son. So the ring wasn't taken off when he was forgiven, it was put on. Well, this was probably around the year 2001, and at that time, we just had, I think, Morgan and Benjamin, and I believe Tisha was pregnant with Elijah. And I remember discussing this subject with my wife, And we were just talking one night about following Yahweh and raising our children. If you are a mom or a dad, that's the most important job that you have, is raising your children. And it's so great and such a blessing when you can start them off at an early age. Well, we talked about it, we agreed that no matter where it led us, we would only teach our children to follow the law of Yahweh, not tradition, Not what we felt, not what we think, not what we wanted, but only the law of Yahweh. We would not take things away from our children that were not sin, even though they might be deemed sin by some people in the church. We would be strict where Yahweh was strict, but we would give liberty where Yahweh gave liberty because because we did not want our children to grow up and one day realize that we enforced man-made traditions on them instead of Yahweh-given commandments. I think what came next was the whole women not being allowed to wear pants or makeup or cut the hair thing. Very prevalent in Pentecostal churches. And this was around 2003 to 2004. And again, I just couldn't find anything in the Bible that said that these practices were sin. As with the jewelry, I realized that makeup can be beautiful and decent on a woman or it can be gaudy on a woman. It can modestly enhance a woman's beauty or it can be used for seduction and adultery. Tisha and I both agreed that these things should be worn in modesty and decency, but we also agreed that the Bible did not forbid women from wearing them altogether. And I've written some on this as well. I've written a booklet on jewelry and I've written some in an article on my website about this. And I think there's some good material on this concerning the name of one of Job's daughters, Karen Hapuk her name that's for another message at another time but I remember the big verse about Jezebel, that was the big one we heard Jezebel painted her face or painted her eyes and that's the one you'd always hear from the Pentecostal churches but when I went back and read that passage and I studied it, it had to do with the way or the intent that she did it and not with the makeup itself the verse in 2 Kings 9 verse 30 didn't just say that Jezebel painted her eyes it also says she fixed her hair And I didn't know any Pentecostal women that believed it was wrong to fix their hair. As a matter of fact, growing up in the Pentecostal church, you see a lot of PhDs, Pentecostal hairdos. (laughs) I got that joke from my Pentecostal friend. I didn't make that joke up. With women's hair length, I knew of one text in the Newer Testament that talked about women's hair, 1 Corinthians 11. But I found it so odd that in strict Pentecostal churches, that subject was hammered on. But all of the many verses about kindness and loving your neighbor as yourself, they were kind of placed on the back burner. I also saw some women who always wore dresses and had long, untrimmed hair. I saw them end up committing adultery. In other words, their standards did not mean that they were really holy. Then I began to study the Pharisees and I learned that just because a person appears to be holy on the outside doesn't mean that they're holy on the inside. I saw a lot of people growing up who had followed these standards but had ugly attitudes that looked down on anybody else who didn't follow these standards. That's not how we ought to be. Now it wasn't everyone. Everyone was not like this. I knew some very good people too who followed these standards and I had to be careful in my studies Because I was a little prejudiced, a little biased. But I didn't want to allow my mind to be against these views just because I saw ugly attitudes behind them in some people. I didn't want that to be my standard. I wanted to study Holy Scripture and see what Scripture said about these things. So on women's hair, 1 Corinthians 11, mentioned about women having long hair, but it appeared to me that it was more about a female distinctive from a male rather than cutting or trimming the hair. And I couldn't find any law of Yahweh that said a woman shouldn't cut her hair. So I told Tisha that I believed her hair should be long, but it was okay to trim and cut and style it. Well, I kept going down the rabbit trail, brothers and sisters. And I also found that Hebrew men wore their hair longer than most men do today. Most of the crew cuts that we see today look more like Roman or Egyptian hairstyles than Hebrew There was an elder by the name of James Reddy who was the first one to point that out to me. He said, what are you doing with that Roman haircut, Brother Matthew? (laughs) I said, I don't know what you're talking about, Elder James. (laughs) He said, sit here at my feet and I'll tell you. Hebrew men were actually commanded against shaving the sides of their head and they're described in the Bible as having locks of hair and they're also commanded against shaving their beard. So some of the churches that I had been growing up in and visited thought that a man was sinning if his hair covered the tops of his ears or if it touched the collar on the back of his shirt. But I found a vow of consecration to Yahweh called the vow of the Nazir or the Nazarite vow in the Older Testament where a man was forbidden from even trimming his hair while on that vow. And some men took the vow for life. Probably John the Immerser um, was a Nazarite for life. That's Numbers chapter 6. And so the verse in 1 Corinthians 11 in the Newer Testament about long hair being a shame on a man, it seemed to do more with the way that the hair was worn in an attempt to be feminine. Kind of like cross-dressing or being a transvestite. With the beard thing, I found that the entire Bible taught the exact opposite of what most Pentecostal churches taught. Some of the churches that I worshipped in would not allow a man to be on the platform in the music ministry or the teaching ministry if he had any facial hair. So they couldn't let our Lord and Savior get on the platform. I think that it came from associating facial hair with the hippie movement of the mid-20th century. But that's not how we decide what's right and wrong, is it? we don't look at the movements and try to do the opposite. We always go with what Yahweh teaches in His law. So the world's ways will ebb and flow. They'll move around and change with the times. The world has no standard. What's right today might be wrong six months from now. But with Yahweh's people, we have a standard, and it's the Torah. And in the Torah, Yahweh commands against a man shaving his beard, Leviticus 19.27. And so I stopped doing that. Then the whole issue of pants on women came up. This was in 2004. Huge subject. When I studied this subject, I did see modesty in dress clearly taught throughout the Bible. But I saw it for both men and women. Now most of the Pentecostal teaching that I had heard growing up on modesty was directed at the women. The men would wear tight blue jeans or tight suits. And sometimes you might see them sit in the pew unappropriately but they'd always tell the women to sit properly and only wear a dress or a skirt, but they could pretty much sit and wear anything that they pleased. I just didn't think that that was balanced. So when I studied that subject, I actually got stricter on my view of modesty because I came away from that study believing that both men and women should wear tunics for modesty. I know that's a hard one to swallow for people because it's so different. But I do believe that's what Scripture teaches, beginning with Genesis 3.21. And I tell some of the brothers around here, you can just start by leaving your shirt untucked. Uh, When I was growing up in church, they made you tuck your shirt in when you went to church. (laughs) But the Scripture actually teaches differently. I don't believe that it's wrong for a woman to wear pants. And I don't believe that pants are a man's garment. But at the same time, I believe that women and men should be modest and should wear a tunic over their pants modestly to cover over their midsection. And all ancient Hebrew men and women and pretty much all Christian men and women wore tunics or robes up until about the 1600s and pants at that time began to take over for the man first and then the woman later. Why am I talking about all this? Why is Brother Matthew talking about this? Well I began to ask a question in 2004 Caleb, I asked this to myself. I studied all of these matters out and I found that I changed to some degree on pretty much every single one of these, of these matters. Why did I change my views? Was I just trying to be disagreeable? I thought that. I thought maybe I'm just trying to be disagreeable. I like to study. I like to debate the Bible. I like to talk about it and have discussions. Maybe I'm just a disagreeable person. But then I realized that there was a reason. The reason was this. is Starting in 1998, maybe a little bit before that, I began to study the first 75% of the Bible along with the last 25% of the Bible. Before that, I had only studied this part. But now I was studying all of it Starting with this part, the first 75% of the Bible that I pretty much never heard any lessons taught on when I was growing up. You might hear a verse quoted here and there. Like my son said this morning in our testimonial service that a lot of the preaching today is people just quoting a verse and then telling you a story. I never heard the Bible taught. So I purposed in my heart that I would teach the Bible verse by verse when I would teach the congregation. But... What I had been doing in my teenage years was just focusing on the New Testament and pretty much ignoring the Older Testament. For example, if you believe that the, the law of Yahweh has been done away with and you don't really need to read the Old Testament, as many churches believe and practice, you can come up with making up a doctrine that men got to have a crew cut, be clean shaven, and wear a suit and a tie to church. Where's your suit and tie, brother? Don't you know it's church time? You can come up with a doctrine like that. I once had a lady tell me (laughs) that she would not allow her children to wear sandals to church. And praise Yahweh, when she told me this, I had grown to a level of maturity where I didn't blast, but I was gentle. And I looked at her and I asked her gently and I said, What do you think that Yeshua wore on his feet when he went to synagogue? He wore sandals all of the Hebrews, they probably weren't dressed flashy. A lot of them only had one pair of clothes. Uh, John the Baptist in his ministry in Luke chapter 3 he even made the statement that if you had two tunics, give one away to somebody that doesn't have it. So when you come to Sabbath service, obviously we should always practice good hygiene and appropriateness and modesty, but Y'all always not looking at how much you paid for your shoes or your clothes. Right. Y'all always not looking at your ties, man. He's not looking at your fancy clothes, ladies. He's looking at the intention of the heart. That's right. Anyhow, you can read 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 3 if you want to, and you can use them to say that jewelry is a sin because that's all you've got. You can read 1 Corinthians 11 by itself without having to make it harmonize with the Older Testament that came before it When you stop ignoring the first 75% of the Bible and add that to your studies, you come away with an entirely different message on a lot of things. Your dress and your outward appearance begins to look Hebrew rather than Pentecostal or Baptist or Catholic or Episcopalian. I'm still different from the world, but my differences don't stem from me trying to be the opposite of the world. You know why I'm different from the world? Because I just follow the commandments of Yahweh. That automatically makes me different from the world. So my method of study changed. I began to view the Older Testament as the foundation upon which the New Testament was built. I do realize that the New Testament often develops or increases our understanding on some things, especially in matters of the promised Messiah. He was prophesied about, but the reality of Him didn't come about until He was born there in Bethlehem. But on matters of morality, right and wrong, a way of life, that teaching has to be the same from one, the first 75% to the last 25%. Yahweh doesn't teach a proper way of life to people before the Messiah's death and then turn around at the Messiah's resurrection and say, okay, scrap all that, erase everything, now I'm going to really show you how to live and dress. No, we don't serve a mighty one like that. We don't serve a mighty one that tells Prophet Moshe honor and dedicate the Sabbath day. It's very important. And then he turns turns around and tells somebody over in the New Testament, "Don't worry about the Sabbath day. It's not a mighty. That's not the mighty one we serve." That's one of those areas my wife and I have been strict on in our family's the Sabbath day. Why? Because you are always strict on it. So I went through all that as I close today to say that the same thing has happened in my regard to my views about women. I have changed some of my views on women in ministry. Not because I'm trying to keep up with the times or be progressive. I'm not looking for hand claps or pats on the back from anybody in the world. I do not follow any of the world's groups, movements, or ways. I'm a member of only one group. And that's Yahweh's group. That's what I'm a member of. And I don't desire anything else. I only follow Yahweh. And some of my views about women have changed because of studying the Older Testament. I've been looking at it for a few years now. But just recently, I've really began realizing that some of the things that I used to believe were an error simply because I was not taking the Older Testament seriously enough on this subject. So, what I'm going to be getting into in my next lessons, I won't be teaching this coming Sabbath, but I'll teach soon enough. You always will. What I'm going to get into is regarding the office of the prophet or the prophetess and the ministries of Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and Anna. These are four women in the Older Testament. And I will show you from the Old Testament why I believe now that it is perfectly acceptable to have women teach and lead in a religious setting. Now, I still believe that a wife is to be under the headship of her husband. And I believe that the scripture teaches that a daughter is under the headship of her father. I believe in familial patriarchy. But at the same time, I also believe that women can be leaders in other circles of the society as a whole, while at the same time remaining in submission to their own husbands. Now, the harmony, I think, and I'll develop this as I teach in my sermons, the harmony comes in realizing that a wife, a woman, who is a wife, is not subject to all men, but to her husband. My wife is not required to live in submission to men because they're men. She is required to submit to me because I am her husband, as the church submits to the Messiah. I'm required to love her in a special way, different from all other women, because she's my wife. And I'm to love her as the Messiah, loved the assembly, and gave himself for the assembly. But the Old Testament approved examples show us that this did not forbid that same woman from teaching and directing the community as a whole. Women like Deborah and Huldah, both of them were prophets or prophetesses, which is just the feminine form of prophet. They were able to submit to their own husbands in the home But at the same time, they were leaders in the community of Israel, and they even directed the men of Israel at times. Now, I realize, like myself, some of you might be thinking, but what about this verse, Brother Matthew? What about that verse? And the verses that you're thinking of probably come from the last 25% of the Bible. And I want to encourage you to place your foundation in the first 75% of the Bible and then walk through the New Testament knowing that Yahweh's morality does not change. It's not, well, we don't do that now because the Apostle Paul said this. It's, Paul can't be saying this now because Yahweh already said this back then. Yahweh is our foundation. We start from the beginning and we work to the end. We don't start with the end and ignore the beginning. So I'm going to get more into this in my lessons to come and I appreciate you listening to me. Give somewhat of a testimony. I know this was a little bit different sermon. I normally teach verses, verse by verse in the Bible. But I appreciate you listening to this testimony uh, of mine today. And I love you. um, And I can't wait to eat the good food here in a little bit. So who's going to do testimony service today? Brother TJ? Brother TJ. Hallelujah.